Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast that looks at the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, and I'm a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Over the past semester in the fall of 2018, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have dealt with the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In this episode, Christopher Casteva, Juliana Madden, and Nicholas Edwards take us to the 19th century to answer the question, how do you pick up the pieces after the world ends? I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 6, 12-14 Wow, that's dark. Was that a prophecy or a poem or something? And did people really believe that something like that was going to happen on earth? Yeah, people did believe this biblical prophecy. Christians across the United States in the 1800s believed in this apocalyptic vision of the end of humanity. But the Millerites were the only Christian group at this time to give their followers an exact date for the end of the world. The the who? The Millerites. They were a religious movement based in the northeastern United States in the 1800s. They followed the teachings of William Miller, who led them to believe that in 1843, they would ascend to heaven to live a blissful existence in an eternal paradise alongside their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Really? That sounds like a lot. It does, but you have to understand that in the early 1800s, religion dominated people's worlds. It dictated how they lived, what they did, even who they married. Religion then is a lot like politics now. Politics affects how people imagine themselves as citizens and how we contribute to how we live. Okay, so maybe what they believed wasn't so ridiculous, but I mean, it sounds kind of silly looking back since they were so wrong. I mean, we're all still here living our lives, right? Their their (laughs) world never actually ended. You're right that the Millerites were wrong. On their predicted days of doom, the apocalypse they envisioned never occurred. Their physical world didn't come to an end, but does that mean that their world, one that revolved around intense devotion to their firmly held religious beliefs, didn't actually end? Well, I don't know. Does it? I mean... You know, when I think of an end of the world, I think of a meteor or a plague or a bomb, you know, something that leaves nothing behind, something like the fiery apocalypse that Miller predicted. And you're right. Those are potentially world-ending scenarios, but worlds can also be social, forged around a set of beliefs and experiences. An end to a social world can actually be just as, if not more devastating, than a tangible sort of apocalypse that William Miller imagined. You see, the complete and utter shattering of one's worldview can feel like the end of the, well, the end of the world. Imagine that there was one event, one watershed moment that caused you to rethink completely how you see your world and made you question your place in it. Like when Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson broke up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're on the right track. That was pretty devastating for me. But anyways, I, I see your point. Even though their physical world didn't come crashing down, the social world that they inhabited did. Yeah, exactly. What's even more interesting is that the social worlds are created and destroyed all the time. Just think about the recent presidential election. You could say that for Democrats, their world ended with the election of Donald Trump. Now just listen to this. 
Trump wins. How about bursting into tears and screaming fuck for the next 45 minutes? Well, America is crying tonight. I'm not sure how much of America, but a very, very significant portion. And I mean literally crying. Everybody is crying and so upset, and it is the end of their world. Feels like the end of the world. We were on uh, Lifetime last right. night, and I was uh, slowly getting drunk is what happened to me. How do we explain how this is possible? How did this happen? You're awake, by the way. You're not having a terrible, terrible dream. Also, you're not dead and you haven't gone to hell. This is your life now. This is our election now. This is us. This is our country. This is a different earth yeah. today than it was 24 hours ago. It's a different place because uh, it just is different. Deeper concerns tonight that the world's shining light of democracy has gone dark. Wow, that's some pretty intense stuff. Yeah. So just like the Millerites were living in their own world, one where an apocalypse was set to occur between 1843 and 1844, in our present day, Democrats were living in their own world just before the 2016 elections. As you know, their world was characterized by social progress, where history was stained with inequality and, and oppression. But they saw themselves in the midst of a period of sweeping change, a world where the first female American president would vanquish a man who, in their eyes, stood as a symbol of sexism and racism. But then it didn't happen. Okay, so I, I think I'm starting to get it. So Millerites lived in their own biblical world that was shattered, and Democrats lived in their own world of social progress, right? Yeah, pretty much. In fact, the way Millerites reacted to the end of the world is very similar to the way that Democrats reacted to the end of theirs. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll explore that more right after this short break. This episode of Final Examination is brought to you by the UMass Amherst Libraries, comprised of the W.E.B. Du Bois Library, the tallest academic research library in the world, named after the famous African-American scholar and activist in the Science and Engineering Library, located in the Leatherly Low-Rise. The libraries are accessible to all five college students, faculty, staff, and the public, with spaces for students to study and collaborate, top-of-the-line research materials and databases, and even a digital media lab with 3D printers, virtual reality, and audiovisual production equipment and technology. For more information, visit the library's website at library.umass.edu. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Nick Edwards. I'm Juliana Madden. And I'm Chris Costeva, and we are students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, exploring the connections between a religious movement from the 1800s and the way that we think about politics today. And Juliana and Nick are all read up on the Millerites, so I decided to pick their brains and learn some more. Now, let's get back to our discussion about the Millerites' so-called end of the world and how it might relate to modern-day politics. But before that, I think we need to get to know the Millerites and their founder, William Miller, a little more. So we invited Harvard professor David F. Holland to speak with us. Now, Professor Holland is a renowned scholar of American religious history at Harvard Divinity School, and he is the John A. Bartlett Professor of Church History in New England. He has studied the Millerites as well as Seventh-day Adventism, which is a major Christian denomination that was founded by several former Millerites and is partially based on the teachings of William Miller. Millerites begin uh, with William Miller's own biblical discoveries. Miller had lost his religious faith early in his life until some experiences during the War of 1812 where he was brought to consider his own mortality and the purposes of existence and rediscovered his Baptist faith. Um, and began a very careful examination of the Bible. In the early 19th century, one of the major commitments of the surging evangelical movement was that the Bible 
could be interpreted by just about anybody. It didn't require a degree in theology. It didn't require high social standing, but that the Bible was accessible to everybody who picked it up and read it with true intent. It's one of the sort of democratizing forces of the period is to see this sacred text in those terms. And Miller took that to heart and began thinking about um, history and the way that the Bible describes the past and the way that it predicts the future. Wow, that's fascinating. But you know what's also fascinating? That they were so committed to their beliefs that they refused to harvest their crops, and some even climbed trees and fell out while trying to get closer to God. Wow, they were really committed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now let's fast forward to the 2016 presidential election. Democrats at that time were living in their own world, characterized by social progress. They saw Hillary Clinton as the next logical step in our progression towards a more just society. When Donald Trump was elected, that world ended. Okay, but, but hold on. I mean, elections happen all the time in this country. You can't just say that the world ended just because your candidate lost. Yeah, you're right, but this election was different. Many progressives see the world as a march towards social progress. They see history as being stained with inequality and oppression, and they see the us in the middle of progression toward justice. Some people's lives were affected more so than ever before this election. I mean, just listen to the types of things Trump was saying. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. I want to build a wall. I'm going to build a wall. We need the wall. And Mexico will pay for the wall. But we have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero because he, he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Count Only Rosie O'Donnell. You bragged that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. This was locker room talk. There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. If Hillary Clinton were a man, I don't think she'd get 5% of the vote. I think I would probably get along very well with Putin. Would I approve waterboarding? You bet your ass I'd approve it. You I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. We spoke to Basilius Zeno a political science graduate student at UMass Amherst. Basilius is not only an asylum seeker from Syria, he was also a political dissident and the co-founder of an opposition blog that took a brave stance against the Assad regime. He shared with us his feelings on the 2016 election and how he, as a believer in social progress, has had to contend with a new Trumpian world. Uh, but for me that night was, uh, was two things. Was a wake up for many Americans who thought they are living in a paradise and they believe in the exceptionalism of the United States, that everything here is perfect. No, what happened is the disruption of their um, daily dreams, where they believe that what they believe in is a shared common sense between all people, regardless of their positionality or their location in terms of the system of power. Uh, so at that night, I, I, there were many friends and uh, random uh, comments about uh, people deciding to go to the uh, to Canada, immigrate to Canada, and I remember there was an article about the website crashed of of Canadian immigration crash because many Americans are basically inquiring about moving there. So I wrote at the time as a Syrian in the U.S. I don't know where else to go, 
I don't even have the luxury to make a joke about moving to Canada. At least, I didn't take the positivist pollsters seriously since I have learned a dire lesson from the Syrian experience. Never trust the experts. Never build false hopes or dreams on a hopeless foundation. The sum of life of my life, fear was my past, fear is my present, fear is becoming my daily companion, my identity. Well, okay, I'm getting it. I mean, it's pretty easy to see how the world of social progress came crashing down when Trump was elected. Definitely. We even invited Massachusetts Congresswoman and the vice chair-elect of the Democratic Caucus, Catherine Clark, to speak with us. Just listen to how she reacted to her world coming crashing down. I never had a doubt that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016. Uh, some of my friends called me the consoler-in-chief, uh, and I kept telling everyone that this race is going to be a lot closer than uh, we can imagine. But in the end, um, I really believe that the voters of this country will not elect Donald Trump. And I was obviously completely wrong. And it was um, devastating is the word that I would use. I have been on the winning side and the losing side of my own campaigns and other campaigns that I have worked on. But this just felt like it was shaking fundamental values and that the election of Donald Trump and for me, his very quick appointment of Steve Bannon to go into the White House just um, made me very concerned and worried for the future of our democracy. It was a very difficult time. I have never had an election affect me in that way. This election was clearly an exceptional one for so many people. And listening to Congresswoman Clark, it's pretty clear how the election constituted the end of the world for believers in social progress. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, what happens next? What happens after a social world ends? How did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, we can get back to that in a moment. But first, let's take a quick break and hear a quick message from our sponsor. We'd like to thank the Commonwealth Honors College at UMass Amherst for participating in our podcast. The Commonwealth Honors College is a community of scholars that provides an inclusive and diverse environment for students who are passionate about their studies. Alongside the vast resources of a large public research university, the Commonwealth Honors College offers immersive courses in all fields of study and provides students a personal and hands-on space to prosper through smaller discussion-based classes. Admission to the Honors College is open to incoming first-year students, current UMass students in their first two years of study, and transfer students from other universities. To learn more, follow the Commonwealth Honors College on Twitter, at UMassCHC, online at www.honors.umass.edu, or visit the Bloom Advising Center on the second floor of the Honors College building. All right, so let's take it back to the Millerites. Even after the Millerites prophesied and the world was disconfirmed, Many followers doubled down and continued to believe. They started many splinter groups that also looked towards an apocalyptic end, but most of these fizzled out after the Second Great Awakening passed. So was that just the end for the Millerites? I mean, I can't imagine that they're still around today. Well, actually, not all the Millerites' ideas, beliefs, and ethics were lost to history. The Seventh-day Adventist movement, which is one of the fastest-growing religious organizations in the world, was founded by former followers of Mil William Miller. The early Adventists believed Miller was still right, but his days were just wrong. 
This group, led by Hiram Edson, would continue to be seen as the true successor to the once powerful Millerite movement. Now, thanks to preachers like Ellen White, the Seventh-day Adventist Church would actually grow and prosper, and it's still going really strong today. Through the Adventist Church, some of William Miller's theology and teaching still live on and impact the lives of millions of Christians worldwide. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Seventh-day Adventism is a major world uh, presence. There's nearly 18, well, there are more than 18 million Seventh-day Adventists around the globe uh, that trace quite explicitly and directly their spiritual lineage back to Millerism. They have increasing influence. Ben Carson was a major uh, political candidate for the presidency uh, in this last election cycle. He's a practicing Seventh-day Adventist. Um, there's a good deal of historical argumentation that uh, Seventh-day Adventism was the seedbed for the creationist movement, the anti-evolution movement uh, in the early 20th century. Um, certainly Seventh-day Adventism has been an important force in American medicine, uh, medical education coming out of Seventh-day Adventist institutions is highly respected, and uh, there are hospitals around the globe that are driven by Ellen White's uh, Millerite-inflected vision about uh, the ways in which Christians ought to work in the world. Okay, you see, I mean, this sounds a little ridiculous to me. I mean, how could they just continue to believe in Miller after he was proven wrong? I know, but it might not be so strange after all. In the 1950s, psychologists Leon Festinger, Henry Regan, and Stanley Schachter published the book When Prophecy Fails. In their book, the authors argued that when a person believes in an idea with all their heart, they are incredibly hard to change, sometimes even doubling down in a belief that has been proven wrong. The study says that five conditions must be met in order for a person to never give up on their beliefs. First, a belief must be held with deep conviction, and it must in some way affect the person's actions. Now second, the person holding the belief must have committed themselves in a way that makes it hard to go back on. Think of it as donating money or time to a political party today. Third, the belief must be specific and concerned with the real world. Fourth, undeniable evidence must occur that proves their belief wrong, and it must be acknowledged by the individual holding that belief. Last and most importantly, the individual believer must have social support. This is the same way Democrats picked up the pieces of their shattered world. They refused to believe that their world of social progress ended. Instead, they doubled down too. They committed themselves to electing more Democrats in the 2018 midterm elections, which saw record-breaking voter turnout and historic Democratic wins. And Congresswoman Clark shared a very similar sentiment. Even though her world was shaken, she is still a believer in social progress. And she and many other Democrats recommitted themselves to their cause. I absolutely believe that we will continue to move towards social progress. And uh, my, my period of utter despair really ended with the Women's March uh, right after Donald Trump's um, inauguration. And that march, that outpouring, that turned into so many candidates running for office in the midterms as Democrats, um, and then finally winning the midterms um, has really uh, restored my faith. We also saw just a lot of candidates who have never run for office before uh, step forward. And I was co-chairing what we call the Red to Blue program, 
which is the program that recruits and supports and mentors candidates who are in Republican-held districts that we thought we could flip. And working with those candidates, um, working to uh, help them make their decision on running for Congress and then raising them the resources and making sure that, uh, you know, they had uh, assembled good teams around them to get to victory was incredibly rewarding. Um, Behind them was just this army of people, many of whom I spoke with over the last two years who never were involved in campaigns before, maybe had never voted for a Democrat, um, but they felt the call to to get involved and to make sure that their voice was heard. Okay, so now I can see what you guys are saying. So the way that the Millerites committed themselves to their beliefs, even after they were proven wrong, sounds kind of irrational, but actually it might just highlight the way that humans tend to organize themselves around their beliefs in general. The 2016 election is a great example of how this type of thinking plays out today. Even though for some Democrats their world was shattered, they doubled down on their belief and reorganized to grow stronger. And as it turns out, we humans just think in predictable ways. Exactly. We know that Millerites at their core were people. And Democrats at their core are people too. And whether it's Democrats or Millerites, whether it's 200 years ago or today, people, human beings, organize themselves behind the beliefs in much the same way. Great disappointments aren't just limited to the Millerites. They happen continuously, at different times and in different ways. But it's the way that we pick up the pieces, the way that we come together after these earth-shattering events. Now that's the part that stays the same. So it really makes you think, who will experience a great disappointment next? And how will they pick up the pieces of their shattered world? Once again, I'm Chris. I'm Juliana. And I'm Nick. Thanks so much for listening with us today. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Christopher Kosteva, Juliana Madden, and Nicholas Edwards. It was edited by Kekali Dansu, Juliana Madden, and Alexandra Pigeon, and produced by Alexandra Pigeon and Kekali Dansu. The material was researched by Juliana Madden, Courtney Murtaugh, and Kekali Dansu. Special thanks go to Basilius Zeno, Professor David F. Holland of Harvard Divinity School, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, the University of Massachusetts Media Lab, and the Political Science Department at the University of Massachusetts. This podcast was produced by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world, led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 International License.